This podcast contains plot spoilers for movies, television, and has numerous pop culture references. Adult language and mature themes are present. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to a podcast of Rare Antiquities, Episode 1. Today, Jeff and myself will dive right into Weird Al Yankovic's cult classic, UHF. The milestone is here. We made it. Episode one. (laughs) (laughs) First and and last, maybe. We'll see. Yeah, it could be. It could be. So I guess before we start getting into this movie, Jeff, maybe, I don't know, you want to tell me when you first saw this movie or if you have any memories of this movie and anything that that comes off the top of your head? I do remember watching this movie when it first came out in theaters. I was a huge Weird Al fan in the 80s and 90s. I found it absolutely hilarious, all of the songs, and today, whenever I hear the real song, all I can hear is the Weird Al version in my head. Those that those are the versions of the songs that I know, so okay. I was so excited to see this movie when it came out. So when you say by song, are you talking about the UHF song, or are you talking about like his other parodies? All of them, man. All of them. Any song that came out in the 80s that he did a parody of, if I hear that song on the radio today, I hear the Weird Al version. Oh yeah, whether, same, whether same it's here. A real one, yeah, yeah. Same here. Um, the, U, the song, the UHF song. I can't recall that song itself. Yeah, I remember watching the actual UHF music video released around this time. Obviously, on Much Music or MTV. So I, that was, I think, that was my first exposure. You might laugh at at this. I think the first memory I actually have of UHF is me coming out of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, and seeing uh, a one-person stand in line for this movie um, <laughs> as I exit the theater. <laughs> so, well, I guess that speaks maybe to uh, to the box office of this film and why it's a cult classic. Oh, yeah. There was one line, uh, one guy standing in line, uh, and two guys standing in line for Star Trek V uh, on, on well, the next showing. That adds up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, like you, going back in time, my my memories are very nostalgic when it comes to Weird Al Yankovic. All of his parodies I loved. When I was young, my cousin, every time we visited them at their house, he would show me uh, uh, his Weird Al albums or cassettes or we would watch uh, his music videos on TV and... Initially, we would gravitate towards his Star Wars parodies like Yoda instead of Lola. I think that was the favorite at the time. Uh, You know what? Uh, Less less impressed now as I've gotten older with that particular song. Now, looking at it, all all of his work, what's your favorite song he's ever done? My favorite song that he's ever done is Amish Paradise, which I believe actually post-dates this film. But uh, that's still my favorite. Uh, great music video, too. Uh, but because you mentioned Yoda, that, that was probably at the time that might have been my favorite. Either that or uh, Eat It. I, I, I yeah. can't choose between the two. <laughs> I, I love Eat It. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Fantastic. actually, my favorite yeah, my favorite music video is definitely Amish Paradise. I don't think that's my favorite song. It's The music video would be Amish Paradise or Fat. I just love, you know, it's it's so obscene now. I don't know if Fat would fly in today's audience. Amish Paradise still is a classic. My favorite song of his is either I Want a New Duck, which is the Huey mm. Lewis uh, ripoff, um, yeah, instead of I Want a New Drug, or All About the Pentiums. 
Oh, good, good choice, man. Good choice. Great oh. song. <laughs> what kind of yeah. chip you got in there? A Dorito? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, I love I, that. Great song. Yeah, great song. That You know what? That might supplant Amish Paradise. I just didn't think of it. Yeah, the, the problem when you get into with Weird Al is like he has these really good songs, but then he, you know, attaches all this polka shit to it on his albums. And that's where I just yeah. kind of stop. I hate all that polka nonsense. I never really got that joke. No, I don't know. And it wasn't just one. Like, he kept doing it over and oh, over and over Oh, they're all over the albums. Yeah, they're all over the albums. Yeah, so I don't know what's going on, what his influence there, what influenced him to do all that kind of nonsense. It, it didn't work. And that's why I never really, I hate to say it, I never really bought any of his work, his albums. The oh. only, only thing of his that I ever owned was was this movie, UHF. Yeah, so now I just recently bought it on Blu-ray. And um, not for this episode, uh, podcast. It was long, maybe last year or six, seven, eight months ago. And... Uh, the transfer is amazing on Blu-ray. Do you do you have it on Blu-ray or is it just a DVD? No, I don't. I don't have it on Blu-ray. I don't have it on DVD. I did stream the HD version online. Pretty good quality. You know, it doesn't look fantastic. It was obviously pretty low budget. Yeah, this this movie they filmed this movie on, on the cheap, and it, it shows. But hmm. uh, you're not watching a movie like this for its production quality, so. Um, you're going to enjoy it for, you know, we'll get into it, what what really works and what doesn't work. Is there anything else you want to talk off the top of your head about Weird Al, or should we get right down into it? No, let's get into it. All right, so I'll start with a, a plot summary, so bear with me. Down on his luck daydreamer George Newman, obviously played by Weird Al Yankovic, and his close friend Bob can't hold a job, usually because of George's daydreaming. After getting fired from a fast food burger joint, his goodwilled aunt and reluctant uncle offer him a job to be manager of a defunct UHF television station, in which his uncle won the deed to the station in a game of poker. George is at first unable to create any worthwhile new shows for the station, and then quickly finds out the station will be bankrupt soon, so he gives up and lets his janitor, Stanley Spadowski, take over a children's TV show. Much to George's surprise, Stanley immediately turns the children's show into a hit, which gives George a confidence boost to create new, imaginative programming. After a short time, the station's ratings are number one in town, much to the revulsion of rival station Channel 8's owner and manager, R.J. Fletcher. Fletcher reaches out to George's uncle to buy the station, which is initially accepted by the uncle because of his ongoing gambling debts to the mob. George convinces his uncle he can get the money raised quickly himself by hosting a Save Our Station telethon. R.J. Fletcher keeps a close eye on the telethon and realizes they may actually raise enough money, so he sends his goons and henchmen to kidnap Stanley Spadowski as his lack of presence in the telethon may prevent George from reaching his goal. George, with the help of a few friends, rescues Stanley from the clutches of R.J. Fletcher, and they get back in the nick of time to reach their telethon goal. So George's uncle then sells the station to George, and to wrap things up in a nice little package, R.J. Fletcher losing his network broadcasting license due to his evil ways, and in the end, George, his girlfriend, and his friends, I guess, live happily ever after. That's the plot summary there, the, the meat and potatoes of the film. But uh, when I wrote this plot summary and now just reading it out loud, there's, <laughs> I wouldn't want to watch this film. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just from reading that, like, no, it, it doesn't sound interesting at all. It sounds very bare bones and boring. We'll get into what really works for this movie uh why it why it became a cult classic what's your thoughts after just me reading a plot summary what, what's the first thing that hits you well i let me just say man good good job on the plot summary that 
that really was that really worked for me. I've got like nine pages of notes here, and you really like boil it down there. But it really has that. It's a lamer story than you know, save the whales or or something stupid <laughs> like that. <laughs> You're really right. It, I wouldn't watch that movie. Not at all. It's no. terrible. Yeah, that's not, it. Sounds terrible. I don't know how he pitched this to to anybody. If if that's the story, I guess it's just because as we'll get into Maybe. it, the parodies is what really works, right? So. Yeah, maybe he won the right to make this movie in a poker game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, before we start, you know, getting into Act One and the other acts and going into a detailed analysis of what happens in the movie, so I got some some questions for you and some in, some information. First, I'll ask you: Do you even know what UHF stands for? I do not. So it's ultra high frequency. Oh, okay. So that's based on, I guess, the radio waves from those from that technology. That's how they would broadcast. Uh, obviously, now with cable, internet, <laughs> T1 lines, and who knows what else is out there, and satellite, uh, all, all that kind of technology is now you know extinct. I mean, it's still out there, but no one uses it, right? So kids today probably will not understand what the hell does UHF stand for. So I thought I'd even ask you. I'm surprised you don't know. That's shocking. Well, I, 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 got, I got the idea that it meant... Yeah, like a designation for channels really high up that nobody ever watched, which I guess is true. That's just what I what I read. I, I didn't even know what it stood for either. I had to look it up. So I, I thought I'd want to stump you live while we recorded. So, and I nice. did it. So yes. <laughs> so uh, this this movie was made by Orion Pictures, who are now bankrupt. Uh, this movie's now the licensing and the rights to this movie is now owned uh, by MGM. So it's funny. Just some interesting tidbits here. This was the movie that was going to make this studio. Uh, I don't know why, but based on early test screenings, they said this had the most positive early test screenings of any movie in Orion uh, Orion Studios history. Wow. That's, yeah. That's a so, shocker. Yeah. So it is a shocker. And the funny thing is, is they were going to give, based on those test screenings, they were going to give Weird Al, they were, he was about to sign a multi-picture deal. There was going to be a sequel to UHF. He was going to do other movies. He was going to be their Robert De Niro. (laughs) So what you're saying is in an alternate universe, we have a UHF trilogy and probably a reboot by now. Probably a prequel trilogy to add to it, And a prequel trilogy, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's probably in that universe probably been rebooted about a dozen times already as well. (laughs) So... Yeah, that that was the first thing that just shocked the hell out of me. Um, they talked about that in the commentary. I saw that on the internet, and it was just like, what? Really? Like, Weird Al was going to get a multi-picture deal because of this movie? But the funny thing is, is based on that confidence, because they were so confident this movie was going to be a summer blockbuster, based on just those early screenings, they released this next to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, <laughs> Batman, Licensed to Kill, When Harry Met Sally, Friday the 13th Part 8, uh, Star Trek 5, as I mentioned, Lethal Weapon 2. They, they put that right in the middle of all those movies. So this movie had a budget of $5 million. It only made $6 million. <laughs> And you wonder why. I mean, first of all, what do you think about that? Like, I just want to hear your comments on just the balls of releasing this movie and why would they do that? Well, I respect the balls of it. Uh, I guess it just shows you what a uh, cocaine-fueled, horror nightmare that Hollywood can be sometimes <laughs> as much as uh, UHF holds a special place in my heart. Nowhere in anybody's wildest dreams would you stack this up against any single one of those movies, let alone all of them. For sure. That doesn't make any sense. 
No, because I mean, uh, yeah, because I remember even when I went to see Star Trek V, which was released about a, a week or two weeks before UHF, I know that the lines for Indiana Jones and Batman were still, th- those movies were still drawing a massive audience. So I looked, actually went to a website and I saw the what movies were released in August, because this was released in late July, UHF. August, there was nothing. I don't know, if they released this in mm-hmm. August of that year... I can tell you right now, people would be starving for a dumb comedy. And that would have made more sense. What I think maybe they wanted to do was, maybe they thought they knew, obviously, they knew that Indiana Jones and Batman were probably going to make a lot of money. Same, At least they thought at the time maybe Star Trek would have because of Star Trek IV, uh, the previous movie, made a lot of money. So maybe they wanted to get ticket sales from overflow audience. People like, you know, they couldn't get a ticket for those other movies, so they'd just come and... You know, they were there at the movie theater, so they just come and get a ticket for UHF. And that strategy did not work. But the funny thing is, is movies today still uh, apply that strategy. Studios know movies will probably suck and they'll make nothing. So they'll line it up with, you know, a big, you know, big summer popcorn event movie. And, you know, they hope to get some overflow into there. Right, right. And this is definitely not a movie that really would have appealed to any of those audiences. I mean, if you're thinking about going to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and you don't get a ticket, I don't think the majority of audiences are going to go, oh, yeah, UHF was definitely my second choice. Those guys are going home. Come on. Yeah, but here's the interesting thing. So now the trailer for UHF, they purposely littered that trailer with all the parody of Indiana Jones because at the beginning of UHF, as we'll get into, there's a parody of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So... The they kind of made the trailer to kind of sucker people in, thinking, "Oh, this is going to be like Indiana Jones." And that so, sounds like something Weird Al would have thought of. You think that's Weird Al? Or you think that's the studio? It's definitely it's definitely the studio, but they channeled Weird Al with that decision making process. Uh, I, I'm sure. In the end, it was a mistake, and you now know why. <laughs> I now know why they cry. Right. So. <laughs> Nice, a callback. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those of you who watched the previous we're already, episode, yeah, we're on episode one. We're already doing callbacks to previous episodes. <laughs> so obviously, I mean, for people who don't know, but we know, um, obviously, this film, as we just said, didn't make much in the box office. It lasted, I think, Weird Al said, lasted all of what two, three weeks that it was pulled. It actually was released, wide release, 2,000 theaters, which back in the time was huge. But it, it got its following, obviously, on home video. The funny thing is, is Orion went bankrupt after this movie. Again, I don't know how much hopes they put on this movie. It seemed like everything. And they were unable to release the home video of UHF uh, within the coming year, which is usually the standard practice. So it took years. We're talking almost a lifetime later for it to actually get released on home video. And that's U- uh, on VHS. Uh, it took forever because Orion went bankrupt. They lost the distribution rights. I mean, they didn't have the money to distribute it, and it took forever to sell the rights for this movie. MGM finally plucked it up and then put it onto video. At least that's how I understand it from my research. Wow. Yeah, so it took forever, but that's how it really came, uh, got into a following. I think the legend just built, word of mouth just spread, and here we are. Well, hey, I'm, I'm sure that's what they were waiting for, is a couple guys sitting around talking about the movie uh, later to pretty much nobody listening, so... Yeah, this Mission is accomplished, Orion. <laughs> yeah, this is this is um, you know hopefully Weird Al will listen to this and say you know what it was all worth it. These guys are talking about it. it I, I did it. Hey, I'm waiting for the phone call. 
Uh, yeah, yes. So let's now get into the nitty gritty. So as we talked about before, we'll kind of split this movie into three acts. We'll kind of go into somewhat descriptive detail of what happens in the acts. Talk about our thoughts and let let it flow organically and um, we'll go from there. So this movie opens up with, as we mentioned before, an Indiana Jones parody, a Raiders of the Lost Ark parody. Uh, George Newman will realize he's daydreaming, but later, but he's daydreaming. The introdu- complete introduction of Raiders of the Lost Ark as he's uh, invading or raiding that pit or that cave to get a golden idol. So do you want to, in my opinion, I, I don't like this part of the movie, but do you want to talk about anything in this part, like what happens here? Well, I'll, I'll, let, I, you, I'll let you chime in here. What struck me uh, at the start was, actually, I thought the production value at the start was very impressive. It looked like a good jungle. It it looked like a, it looked like a very convincing uh, riff on the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark. A couple of things I noticed was just some of the silliness that happens in the background. You know, they're in a jungle, and normally you'd hear uh, jungle noises, wild animals, and you hear like dogs barking and cats meowing, uh, which I thought was kind of an interesting little detail. Uh, I did laugh out loud when when George as Andy whipped the guy's arm right <laughs> off his body. Yeah, I did like that part. That was the one part I did like about this. And the guy just looks down at it and goes, "Yeah, eh, I'll, uh, yeah. I'll leave now." So and and that uh, that kind of that kind of humor, which we see a couple of those types of things throughout the film, I thought was funny. I think he went over overboard when like that train runs over his other uh, yeah. companion there. That 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 was a bit much. Yeah, I like. I think what works with Weird Al is a little bit more on the obscure side of the humor yeah. when he does the parody, which is why we I wanted to pick this one as our first episode. I hated the guy getting run over by the train as he backs out. You know, throw me the idol, I throw you the whip, right? So it's like, yeah, that was well, they, that guy. They, that was supposed to be that guy. That was supposed to be that guy, and they probably could have had a lot of fun with that scene from Raiders, and they didn't do it at all. Yeah, I know. I yeah. think they sh- he should have accompanied him more. Yeah, uh, I he agree. could have. Yeah, it would have been much better. Except he just goes, "Look!" and then yeah. <laughs> looks at that stupid <laughs> sign, and then he says, "We cannot go any further. I'm leaving." And he gets hit by a train. That was so dumb. Yeah, missed opportunity there, yeah, big time. Completely missed opportunity. And uh, what do you think of the signs? Like all the warning signs as he comes in. Oh yeah, uh, stop avalanche and oh yeah, emergency. I, think, I hated all that. I uh, thought I probably thought it was funny as a kid, but. Same as you, uh, b- uh, too much. Yeah, it, too it, much. it's too much. It's too much. Yeah. So um, as he as he moves through, uh, obviously he gets to the the idol that he wants to retrieve from this cave, just like Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Instead of an actual idol, it's the actual it's a replication of the Oscar statue. Except, I think this Oscar is holding his crotch. <laughs> he's not. Oh, did you notice that? I didn't notice that. No. Yeah, he's holding his crotch. So I maybe it? they didn't get the rights to. To copy the Oscars specifically? Yeah, well, I, I thought it looked different. Yeah, it looked plastic. So again, the production quality yeah. coming through <laughs> right away. So I, I think, yeah, as you, I love the replication of the indie sets. It looked good, but uh, the humor for me here really didn't work well. And what happens next with the boulder chasing him, even outside of the cave, it just got a little too much for me. Yeah, uh, He's running, for those who haven't seen it, he starts... You know, Indiana Jones, uh, the boulder starts chasing Indy, and he jumps out of the cave, and that's the end of it. The boulder just clogs the entrance. But here in the UHF, the boulder bursts through and keeps chasing Al throughout the world, I guess it looks like. <laughs> it goes through, what, France, Italy? Yeah. Uh, he goes through Italy, yeah, France, the States, and the boulder just follows him everywhere, every turn he makes. And 
eventually gets flattened. I do love George, the, the flattened George look. I, I think in the commentary he says he still has that in his garage. <laughs> Freaks him out every time he like walks by. He's like, oh, what? It's like, <laughs> so I, I, I do love that. The, the the dummy that's flattened, but aside, the joke is dumb. It just doesn't work, in my opinion. I, I agree. Uh, a lot of Weird Al's humor, if you listen to his music, is actually quite clever. It's very intelligent, and uh, this is just hitting you over the head. It's just dumb. Yeah, it's just really stupid. Yeah. So they transition from this point now, and he he's obviously daydreaming, and he's him and his friend Bob are working at a, a burger joint, and because of his daydreaming and lack of respect for his manager, he gets fired. Again, I'm not going to talk too much about this uh, this one scene. So he goes back to his apartment, and it's the same building. Uh, his apartment's adjacent, uh, right next door to a karate school. And here we get to meet uh, Cooney, who, who's, I uh, can't remember the actor who's played him, but uh, my wife immediately recognized him from some guy in 16 Candles who played uh, Long Duck Hong. And it's like, is that a porn? <laughs> it's like, that's the first thing that came to my yeah. mind. Long Duck Hong? It's like, oh, it's a porn movie. It's a porn that's name. That's not a racist name at all. No, at all. no, no. It's, that's for 16 Candles. Here he plays Cooney. I guess that's slightly less racist, but... Slightly. Well, it's an improvement from Mickey Rooney's uh, Asian Asian take in Breakfast at Tiffany's. So, what am I? Mickey Rooney's not Asian. <laughs> yeah. So, so interesting thing about this building here. This was actually called the Intervision Studio. This building, this small little building you see there. They filmed this in Tulsa, in the states. And it was, um, I guess, there was some technology being built there. I'm not sure if it had to do with movies or wine or grape seeds because. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola actually came by and watched them film a lot of these scenes. Francis Ford Coppola was watching these scenes. Yeah, he was watching them film UHF. I don't know why he was there. I think they, a, a Weird Al said something about intervision technology or something like that. that was being developed in those studios, but I'm guessing it's more to do with wine and grape. So The funny thing was, is he was... He was busy watching UHF, but filming of Godfather 3 was happening at the same time. So I guess that, that might explain some things. Yeah, well, which movie are we talking about right now? That both, tells both. you all you need to know. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Godfather 3. <laughs> I found that very interesting. It's like, weird. You know, that was the highlight of UHF. Uh, the Francis Ford Coppola comes by and starts watching and giving some tips. It's like, what? <laughs> so. Just tells you how much passion went into Godfather 3, I guess. And after. I don't know if he did much after that. Uh, Tucker, the man of his dreams, and maybe that's it. Uh, Dracula? Oh, yeah. Dra- was that Coppola? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was cool. Uh, that's a good movie. I like it's that movie. pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty yeah. good. All right, so anyways. Maybe it may be a movie for a future podcast. Anyways. Yeah, so just getting back into the scene here where, you know, he's kind of getting depressed about his life and him and his him and his friend Bob are talking about it. So what did you think of those gags uh, with the karate school, hearing the background and the fist coming through the wall? And uh, You know what? I, I thought that they were emblematic of a lot of the problems of the whole movie, not to get ahead of myself, but... The movie's sort of structured in a way where there's just sort of random things that happen every so often that are meant for gags. Uh, when the guy punches through the wall and, uh, you know, Weird Al's looking at the guy's wristwatch to check what time it is nonchalantly, doesn't really generate a laugh for me. The karate teacher and his uh, over-the-top accent and his catchphrase, they're so stupid, felt, falls a little flat for me. Really? I, I mean, when I was a kid, I liked it. Uh, I, I still like the, the punch through the wall gag when he's saying, what's the time? And it's like, oh, here we go. It's like, I, I've always liked that. I mean, that, it's, a st- it's stupid comedy, but I think in this, in this one case, for me, it worked. 
Yeah, we'll get. I, I think what happens here is is this to me is how simplistic the storytelling will be. Is this is story writing one hundred and one, and everything yeah. that they introduced, they're trying to they'll kind of have a wrap up or a payoff later. Uh, so yeah, um, we'll get into that uh, a little bit later. So I uh, will say though, is uh, Terry the girlfriend is looking fabulously eighties all throughout this movie. Yeah, I'm. You know, the less I talk talk about Victoria Jackson, the better. But uh, oh, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get to her in a second. So right now, still in the scene, he's talking to his friend Bob. He's played by David Bowie. Apparently, he gets mixed up by David Bowie all the time. Yeah, I, I looked at um, this guy's resume, and uh, he hasn't really done much since this movie. I mean, no surprise. I think he was in The Rock as, like, uh, an army guy, and that was it. He was, though, a stalwart of 80s movies as this pretty much exact same character, the friend. I, I haven't seen him in anything else except maybe a cameo in these other movies. What movies are you talking about? A, a couple of John Cusack classics. He plays the friend. And that's it. Just the friend. And that's it's, right. Yeah, because yeah. like, he doesn't do anything in this movie at no, all. he does not. You know what? He's and there for I exposition. He, he's there for exposition. And I noticed when I was taking my notes as I watched this movie... I didn't write him down a single time in all of my notes and it doesn't change anything in the story or, or the plot at all. Well, I wrote two things down. So one thing is there's a scene later with him and when things start to getting successful for them, there's a scene where Weird Al's throwing grapes at him and he's catching oh, it in yeah. his mouth. Apparently that's his special Hollywood trick. When he goes to – no, I'm not kidding with you. And that, that's what Weird Al said. That's his oh. skill. And I think I that explains everything. That explains everything. That explains the, that explains the rest of this guy's filmography right there. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I feel sorry for the guy. I, I poor actually, bastard. I, yeah, poor bastard. I mean, just, I don't hate him. Uh, he's not a bad actor. I mean, he didn't really he didn't really show me that he could really act or not act. Uh, I didn't get any reading off him. But as you said, he's just there. But yeah. one other interesting note about him. The only other thing I wrote down about him is, guess who was originally slotted to play or offered to play this part of bob can't wait to hear jerry seinfeld oh. <laughs> are you serious yes yes now that would have been a very different film yes it would have been and but my worry would i, I would have loved like in that alternate universe i hope that's the case you know that would be so special there's actually so many seinfeld reference um links or coincidences in this movie it's you wouldn't believe it uh, unintentional, but uh, it's all over the place. You know, like George and Newman, George Newman. So you get George uh, and Newman. You know, uh, I mean, these are just things. You know, after watching the movie and you know knowing about Seinfeld, you can go back. And then obviously Michael Richards and uh, there's a couple. There, I'll, I'll mention a couple other ones to to you later. But my question to you is, uh, I think you just touched on it. Is how do you think Seinfeld in this part would have done? Would it have been a different movie? How different? And then do you think that would have changed Seinfeld's career? Well, just thinking about that now, having first heard this just now, uh, I do think that that would have made this a slightly different film because obviously that's going to change the relationship or how they the uh, the interplay between Weird Al and, and his friend. So that would have been very different. Seinfeld obviously is not much of an actor, a uh, much different type of performer. So that might have been really interesting to see. Would that have changed his career? He's an unknown at this point, so... I doubt it. Now, Seinfeld premiered in 1989, if I'm correct. 
uh, same year this movie was released. So I think it's unlikely that that would have had much of a impact on the trajectory of uh, Jerry Seinfeld. But you never know. Maybe because this movie flopped, they um, what is it, Columbia or who who owned Seinfeld's rights at the time? Uh, they may have they may have uh, canceled that that show because this was filmed in '88. Well, I guess that's a possibility. Yeah. So I mean, it's probably a good thing he didn't star in this one. So. So um, so now we'll go back to the movie. So from from the apartment, as you said, he gets a scene with his girlfriend. Uh, Victoria Jackson's absolutely horrible. I don't think she's trying. So she's just doing her shtick from Saturday Night Live. I think I've seen yeah. her a couple times there. I'm sure she's a very nice person and a nice girl. Uh, so it's nothing against her. But the fact that she has no career aside from this speaks volumes. So job well done. But <laughs> um, so, so from there, we go to the aunt's party, uh, and this is what really kicks off the movie. So I hear George, he's just attending his aunt's party, and we see his uncle winning a deed to this UHF station in a game of poker. So the funny thing here is, is what, what did you think about the big Louie, who was the, the mob guy, telling his uncle Harvey what he, he won the deed and stuff like that? You see that behind the scene behind the chair point of view shot of just big Louie's arm holding a cigar. He has this deep sort of menacing voice. I wouldn't go that far, but what, what was your first thoughts of seeing this character? I don't know if I have my timeline right, but I thought of Dr. Claw. Yes. And I have that in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. That's great. Yeah. I'm glad we think of the same wavelength there. That, that is completely Dr. Claw. I wonder if he just got that from there. He never mentioned anything. I can't find anything on it. But well, yeah, I don't that's... know what the timeline was on Inspector Gadget. That's why I say, but that, but Doctor Claus, of course, based on Blofeld from James Bond. So it could have been the same influence manifesting in that character. Maybe, but I mean, you don't get that behind the behind the chair shot that you in in Bond. Right? It's true. usually the front point of view, and you see him stroking the cat. Here, there's cat. no cat. Yeah. Even Doctor Claw has a cat. Yeah, and, and you just see the arm, and it's always the right arm. With Doctor Claw, and here it's always the right arm for Big Louie, uh, and I always found I found that amusing. I thought I wondered if the director or Weird Al just ripped it right off from the cartoon. So could be, could yeah. be. The only other highlights. So obviously, what happens here is his uh, aunt learns that his uncle won the deed to the station. So she says, suggests to him to find um, to have George uh, Weird Al's character be the manager of this station. What I loved about this scene here is, is that uh, uncle, the uncle Harvey says, Oh him, no way, no way. And they cut right away from there to George going to the station. Uh, I love the fact that they didn't waste time on exposition there. That's the one thing. The one point that I have that the director really did right is he made it tight. He didn't waste time in exposition. They just jumped right from there to going to uh, visit the station, George and his girlfriend. Yeah, that's a really good choice there. You're right. Uh, no sense in wasting time there. Tight storytelling. The detail that I noticed in that scene was he won Channel 62 with a pair of sevens, which is a shit hand in poker. So I thought that was kind of fun. <laughs> I didn't even notice, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. good catch. Good yeah. catch. I guess then the one thing I want to just quickly touch on is it's a question to you. So we're going back. Just going back to the scene where his uncle Harvey wins the deed for this game, uh, this station, by playing a game of poker. Obviously, this is going to be foreshadowing. His, um, he's prone to gambling, pro prone to getting into debts and into trouble. Do you think that movies are proper storytelling should always have these kind of payoffs? Or do you like it to flow a little bit more organically? Here, I feel in this movie, everything shown has that payoff at the end. So it's like very basic storytelling. 
But I've listened to other podcasts and a lot of people, when they review movies and they, and, and they comment on movies, they like that. They're saying, I want that payoff. Like, why are you introducing something to me early in the movie without it paying off later at in the movie. I'm not sure I like that all the time. I like it to be a little bit more free, a little bit more organic, whether it pays off or not. Because here, when I when I watch a movie now, it's like, oh yeah, here's the payoff. Here's the intro to the payoff. Oh, here's the intro to the payoff. Oh, mm. you know, I'm always thinking, oh, if I'm introduced to something in the beginning of a movie, does that mean I'm going to... Is this foreshadowing for something to come? And well, I, I, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying there. And uh, on the one hand, if we talk about what we were just talking about with cutting unnecessary exposition, having tight storytelling, if you're going to throw something into the film, then if there is no payoff later on, then why was it there in the first place? So I can understand that point of view. To speak to what you're saying is, is that really necessary to, to do that at all and just tell an organic story? Movies... I find now, and I think you'll agree with me, tend to flow sort of at a, a, a paint-by-numbers uh, type of structure. So things are introduced and they're paid off later because that's how you tell stories now. So it is now just the norm. So it feels worn out. It feels used. So no, I, I don't think you need to be doing that. But if you're telling a tight story and you're a skilled storyteller, whether you're a director or any type of other uh, storyteller, in order to tell a satisfying story, and I think that's really as necessary in films, you need to hit the right beats. And often that means, yeah, if you're introducing something in the first act, it, it's got to pay off in some, in some respect. Otherwise, it's kind of wasted screen time. No, no, good points. Yeah, I, I'm with you on there. Uh, I think that's that's good points that you brought up. So going back to the movie now. So what happens here after the party, as we said, quick quick cut for George and his girlfriend, Terry. They're going to go visit the station and at night uh, where it's, it's abandoned or seemingly abandoned. Uh, just from the outside shot, the place looks so – one thing I wrote down, it looks so small. Like this building looks like – it's like maybe what, 400, 500 square feet? And then, you know, you see the shots later and it's a massive studio, a lot of office space, big, massive studio. Where did that come from? I mean, you, obviously, this is movies you get to take things with a grain of salt, have a little leap of faith. But that's something I noticed is like this thing is really small from the outside. It's, it's the type of scene where the movie really shows its budget and they didn't have enough creativity to make you buy it. Yeah. When we when we when they start going up the steps, so they you, you, here's the first instance of meeting the bum you see here, and, and obviously again there's gonna be payoffs later with this guy. Uh, so what, what's your first thoughts of this guy? Like this guy, wow, that that face. He's got a face for radio, that's for sure. <laughs> we have him on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, the poor, I forget his name, but the poor man's dead. So let's not maybe. Oh, uh, he's passed. Sure. So uh, the interesting thing here is he uh, little tidbit. He was the first ever Bozo the Clown. That's a that's a dubious distinction for a man to have, isn't it? <laughs> well, better than you and me. Well, we're podcasters. Yeah, I don't know. Do we true. take this or do we want to be Bozo the Clown? Well, I'll take what we've got. I'm not nightmare fuel for small children. <laughs> so. Yes. <laughs> not yet, anyway. <laughs> so, so as they go in, they see that the studio is um, pretty empty, and then they open a door. And here is where you meet Philo the Scientist. So, uh, interesting story. This character was named, they named him Philo after Philo J. Farnsworth, who was the inventor of television. Oh, interesting. So, a little interesting tidbit there. Now, the actor, do you know who this actor is? And most I, people won't. I did not recognize him. Okay, well, you probably won't. I only recognize him because my mom used to watch 
soap operas. So when I came home from school uh, and having a snack, and while I'm eating there, I'm watching. This is Anthony Geary. I had to look up his name. But he played a, a guy named Luke of the Luke and Laura fame on General Hospital. I, I know because my mom used to watch that. So, uh. Of course she did. <laughs> <laughs> so um, moving on. <laughs> Uh, the second uh, station visit during the day. Oh, actually, we'll go back. What did you think of this character? Uh, I actually like this character. He had a little mystery to him. Even the other characters in the movie didn't know what to make of this guy. He just seemed such an incongruent piece of what you expected to see when you first walked into a television studio, as low rent as it was. Uh, yeah. So I thought that was I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, and I, I, what I loved about this guy is I loved his deadpan delivery. I mean, he holds up these yeah. uh, these rods and um, some science experiments. So George holds it. He turns something on, this uh, reactor transistor, and all of a sudden Weird Al gets electrocuted. And then he doesn't even, like, stun Philo. He walks back and goes, yeah, it works. I just <laughs> love that. I love, I love that deadpan delivery. Yeah. Uh, and from what they said on the commentary, that's what – Gave him the job. They wanted somebody else. I don't know who it was. But when this guy came in, I think he was a friend of one of the casting agents and, or an acquaintance. They brought him in and he did that scene. And that deadpan delivery got him the job right there. It, it, it kind of got me a, a sort of a mirror image picture of uh, Christopher Lloyd's Doc Brown in uh, Back to the Future, who was so over the top. And with the lightning bolt, that's kind of where, uh, you know, I kind of I saw that in my in my mind. So, uh, dead, yeah, the deadpan delivery... Uh, totally worked for me. Oh, yeah. It was funny. I love that. Every time he goes, yeah, it worked. <laughs> I always crack up. I love that. <laughs> so, okay. So it's my new ringtone. <laughs> yeah. We should end our podcast with that. It worked. Yeah, we, <laughs> we actually recorded it. We it should. worked. Actually, right? Computer didn't crash. Yeah. Um, so, so they leave. Uh, you know, they're, they're looking at this guy. And I guess they're scared and run away. And then they come back during the day. So it's uh, George coming back with his friend Bob, who I guess he's now the co-manager or assistant manager or i guess the chief financial officer i'm not sure what his role is <laughs> yeah. um what a what an upgrade uh from a burger joint to cfo that's great pretty good yeah pretty good so when they come in they meet the secretary pamela ficklestein i believe her name is she's played obviously by people who will probably recognize her pretty quickly uh fran drescher uh she was uh, played a character called the nanny on some 90s tv show i believe um, i can't remember what that show was called though the nanny I know, it's just messing oh. with you. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I never watched it, but I, obviously I know about it. So uh, it, it, was, it was pretty popular at the time, right? You're, you're not going to throw me under the bus now, are you, on that one, right? <laughs> or am no. I walking right into these things? It, well, you did originally. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah, that, you're going you're gonna to walk into lots, man. Well, I'm so. trying to provide some tidbits here, some trivia. What am I supposed to do? What you're doing? Keep going. You're, you're... <laughs> Working for me. <laughs> <laughs> My question now is with this scene. So she's working there. Who's who's working in this studio? Is it operational? Like, I'm expecting to hear Palpatine. When I see this, I hear, this station will be operational when your friends <laughs> arrive. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like who yeah, is... it's the middle of the night. You got the secretary working there. Some weird uh, mad scientist. And what are they doing? Are they running a, are they running a TV station? Are they filming shows? She's talking about being a news anchor. I don't have a great understanding of what happens in uh, local TV stations, but I don't think this is it. Yeah, because when I was young, even though I didn't know the term at the time, I always thought that Philo was just a vagrant. He just it was like a homeless <laughs> guy 
who set up shop there at this like abandoned TV station. So the next day we see that we actually have a secretary working there. So what's Philo's role? Is he actually doing something in this station? So some of this stuff doesn't make sense to me. So. And he says he lives there too, right? Does he not? Yeah. He so says obviously... he lives there. So it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. No. <laughs> at all. And and this is, you know, where we talked about tight storytelling, this is where it gets really loose. Yeah, uh, you know, there's leaps of faith in any movie yeah. here, but I mean, obviously this is not a smart movie. This is this is a dumb comedy. You know, it is it is what it is, but yeah, this is something I noted down. Apparently in the deleted scenes, there is a news announcer who comes as they're talk introduced to the secretary, Pamela. He comes, asks for some notes that she's typing up uh, for, like, uh, for his news broadcast, and they actually show the news broadcast. So it, 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 the station is operational. Oh, the funny thing is, is Weird Al, through all of his uh, deleted scenes, he fast-forwards through everything. I don't know if that was a Weird Al joke, or he legitimately knows this stuff sucks. So he's just fast-forwarding through everything. I kind of wanted to see everything, too, but yeah. yeah, probably a combo. Um, so anyway, so... From there, Pamela comes by and says, oh, time for, uh, we got a package, misdelivered package that's supposed to go to Channel 8, who's a major network. Uh, so George decides to go meet the competition, bring the package there, and here is our introduction to the antagonist, R.J. Fletcher, and his son, and I guess some other guys who work at the station. Uh, R.J. Fletcher's played by Kevin McCarthy, wonderfully played. He is one of the highlights of this movie, in my opinion. I don't know if you know anything about this actor, do you? You know what? I recognized him, but I couldn't quite place him. Uh, so, uh, from my research, he, he did play. He was involved in the original uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Apparently, that's what he's most known for. I guess he did some. He was part of formation of the Actor Studio. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. So, uh, I think he kind of mainly was involved with that. He did some other, you know, TV work and other movies. I know him from another obscure movie uh, called Inner Space, um, which we might do at one time. Uh, later down the road. How did you think this guy played played this character? What were your thoughts about him? I really appreciate when an actor has the balls to just get on there and shamelessly start chewing scenery. <laughs> uh, I wrote down in my notes maybe ten times, hmm, do you think that they want us to think that this guy's a total asshole? And he owns it, and I loved it. There isn't a single scene here where this guy has any other characteristic other than he's a complete and total cock wagon, and I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I loved right. it. He, he yeah. along with another character we're going to meet very shortly, are the highlights of this film. But yeah, interesting tidbit, this guy was 74 years old at the time of filming this movie. Wow, that's impressive. I yeah. hope I have that much piss in me when I'm 74. You will. Don't worry. You will. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> I, there's one thing I know. If you're alive at that time, you'll, you'll, you'll be like that. But I, I wish hey, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to it. I w- yeah, but I wish I looked good that good when I'm 74. That guy looked pretty good. Yeah, you don't look that good now. I know. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so what happens here is there's a little scene with R.J. Fletcher before he meets George where he's lose- lost this uh, research file, and he blames the janitor, and then he calls in the janitor, and uh, we meet Stanley Spadowski, the janitor, uh, played by none other than Michael Richards, Kramer of Seinfeld fame. So before I get your thoughts on him, I'll just mention a couple things. This movie was the first movie that Michael Richards actually got billing. He was known just for doing some stand-up routine and some playing some weight trainers or some other things on a show called Fridays or some when he goes on to The Tonight Show or stuff like that. He was just a kind of like a comedian, like more of a physical comedian. And this was the first movie that, he, that, that, got, that got him. He got a big break here and he actually got billing. To me, he is the standout performance of this movie. 
what's what's your thoughts on on this character and Michael Richards himself? Well, I, I mean, for sure, it's been a while since I've seen this movie, and uh, being a big Seinfeld fan, I certainly uh, marveled at how young he looked uh, doing this film, and then realizing that it was the same year that that Seinfeld came out uh, was a was a big surprise that I noticed that. Uh, certainly, his physical humor you can see uh, if you know Seinfeld, you can see uh, the the roots of his physical comedy here. Uh, certainly, this is much more over the top than his performance as Kramer on Seinfeld. But I enjoyed uh, watching him. He's, he has a certain presence on screen, even as uh, goofy he, as he's playing this character. You know, having seen him play other characters, uh, I think there's a there's a lot of talent at, at play here. And if you just look a little bit deeper, uh, it's more than just uh, some idiot with a mop. My mop. <laughs> 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 and the fake I mean, those are fake teeth too right? those are fake be, teeth yeah those are yeah. fake teeth uh, i was gonna mention that as part of my notes he they, he did mention it's funny on the commentary I, I think he does this quite often i think he did this on the seinfeld commentaries as well on those dvds he kind of pops in and out of the commentary like they're halfway through the movie he comes in for five minutes oh yeah, yeah. great scene i had fake teeth and then he leaves sounds like an actor yeah <laughs> an actor well, yeah and as an aside, I mean, if for Seinfeld fans, he cert- if you watch behind the scenes on Seinfeld, he seemed like the most the serious guy there. Yeah, but yeah, it's true. Uh, I think he was probably the most serious guy there, according to what the rest of the stars said. Here, I think, interesting story about this one is he did a lot of ad-libbing. He's known for kind of doing that off the cuff, and he didn't really stick to the script a lot. He kind of just generally knew it and then kind of just went his own way. And that that was a real interesting thing to know. Uh, it doesn't surprise me because he is that good at, at what he does. The one thing is, the interesting thing is here is when he had his um, audition, because they had him in, his mi- in mind for this part at the beginning, they brought him in and I think they said he just started asking about coffee. Can I get some coffee? And then he completely forgot about talking about the part and he just kind of went on a riff on coffee. And it was just <laughs> interesting. And it's the same thing like when it happened when he auditioned for Seinfeld. Apparently, when he went in, he just did a handstand and then left the room. He didn't even speak, and that's how he got the job. You know, next time you want to go in for a job interview, I'm going to attempt a handstand, you know, and, and see where that gets me. I'll probably fall over and land right on the You know, you right can try the, the other Michael Richards tactic and drop the N-word a few times. <laughs> see if that'll work for you. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, that yeah maybe maybe Sorry. maybe where Too are we soon? <laughs> the, no. <laughs> so let's move on. So what's happening here now is is um, George then meets Stanley. He's getting his mop stole, <laughs> ripped away from because like uh, R.J. Fletcher fires him because he thinks he stole the file. So then his son's trying to steal his mop away, and this is where you find out. Oh, I've had this since I was seven years old, <laughs> and then. But the, do you know the guy who plays R.J. Fletcher's son who's taking away his mop? Have you recognized this actor before? Uh, he looks like something I've seen in an, another 80s movie, but no. He, he played that gay, street tough, one of the gay, street tough couples in Seinfeld who, who torture, torments oh, Kramer. Oh, yes, of course. Not that there's anything wrong with that, of course. But <laughs> I remember that, and I can see his face in my head right now. That's hilarious. Yeah, along with an Itali- uh, the other gay Italian yeah, stereotype, yeah, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> You will wear the ribbon. (laughs) Let's get back on track. So what happens here is is going back to the UHF, the movie, um, we see George's first attempt at getting, trying to create some original um, programming. Uncle Nutsy's Playhouse. You know, he doesn't have a lot of kids there who's really interested. And then we get our first kind of uh, parody commercial, Spatula City. 
Yes, uh, Spatula City. Spatula City. Uh, I love I love that parody. This is actually the first scenes ever shot for the film was shooting this commercial. Oh, really? Yeah. And the funny thing is, is they actually put the billboard advertisement for Spatula City actually on a freeway in Tulsa. And they left it on there after filming was done for several months. And the funny thing is, is people kept inquiring about, where is the Spatula City? I want to go there. Because they sell spatulas, and that's all. And that's I mean, all. I mean, I, I never understood that. Really? People, I mean, I guess it doesn't surprise me in the world we live in that people actually want to go to Spatula City. You know, it's a, it's a really random joke to make. Who thinks that up? That's the genius of Spatula City and how well they worked that commercial I thought was was really impressive with the kids being super excited. Just a stroke of genius. Yeah, I, I, I think that's one of the parodies that actually does work. It's it's good to see that right away. So they're getting now still getting back to the story to move on. So we see cut to Pamela Pamela Ficklestein in action. She's now upgraded from secretary to to, to news uh, reporter, and she's waiting for her cameraman, who's Noodles Macintosh, this little person. I think he's played by Billy Barty. Funny thing is, I noticed here. I don't know if you noticed is it says Noodles on his camera. And um, a question for you is, do you think he manufactures these cameras, special cameras himself? So wouldn't he want to go into business? I mean, like, why be a cameraman? I think if he manufactured the cameras himself, wouldn't they be a little smaller? Uh, that thing was pretty small. You don't think so? But, um, but, but um, bum. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know what? I, 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 simple joke for a simple man. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be the last. Yeah, anyways, so we, we, we see this guy, and then he gets tripped up. We see RJ's, uh, the competition channel 8's uh, RJ's son, who's also a news reporter, I guess, and his Italian uh, crony, <laughs> henchman. He's I play- love this guy. Yeah, he... he the toothpick. Yeah, the chewing the toothpick. So his name is David Provel. Do you know where he's from? Like, have you recognized oh. him from somewhere? Oh, I recognize him, but again, I, I, I just can't place these guys he was on the sopranos the full round are you serious well there you go i guess that adds up then yeah so i'm I'm very happy that he actually broke the barrier and avoided those italian mob stereotypes i mean yeah exactly it's good (laughs) to break down walls (laughs) it gives me hope for the world right so (laughs) i guess when you got a certain look that's 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 it for you yeah, so after RJ actually trips up Noodles, to, it breaks his camera uh, and hurts Noodles. Again, pay off later. He call, uh, the, 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 the crony, the hench, the Italian mob guy who's played by David Prohl, he comes by and he goes, Noodles, you have to be more careful. He knows Noodles? Noodles is that famous? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Channel 62 is such a fierce competitor in the uh, newscasting <laughs> world. Uh, this is something I noticed. Is like Noodles, uh, I guess, is well known in the industry, so... Like you say, and I had this thought when I was making my notes, I'm like, having not seen the movie in a while, obvious setups for later payoffs. Yeah, yes. Everything, again, is a payoff. You know, some things happen. There's some other jokes that happen along, but to kind of round out Act 1, which is the bulk of the movie, actually. George finds out that the station's about to go bankrupt. Uh, You can't find any audience for the shows that they're producing and coincidentally because he's trying to work so hard to get this off the ground he forgets his a dinner with his girlfriend and her parents and just want to talk about that scene with victoria jackson and her parents did you get a load of what the fuck she was wearing oh my god like i said before fabulously uh 80s yeah fabulous eight this is an 80s man i don't know what this thing was this is she's got a tar- tiara on She's got this mat, like what is this, like a prom dress, and it, these poofy shoulders. This, these aren't the shoulder pads that women wore in the eighties. What the fuck is this thing? This is a puffy dress. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, it's a puffy dress over football padding. 
uh, okay, fabulously eighties from outer space. Yeah. So, yeah. so and, what I, you know what a bit I and I I made a note of it. I thought it was a little bit funny, but a bit much for that. You're kind of overloading a small scene here with what's trying to be a big joke, and I don't think that works. Yeah, and anything, in my opinion, anything that she's every scene she's been in has been horrible. Uh, it hasn't worked. I, I don't enjoy the character. There's not much there. So at this point, because George forgets the dinner, she dumps him, even though he's working really hard. I think someone would understand, but I've had enough of you, George. You and I are through. So that's the end that's of That's a really good impersonation, man. That was really <laughs> impressive. Uh, thank you. <laughs> no, seriously, that was great. <laughs> wait, till you get, wait, wait till you get a load of me, right? So it's okay. <laughs> so this kind of rounds out Act 1, which is the bulk of the movie, which is why it took a lot of time to get here. So the rest of the movie is really quick and fast. But just at this point, what are your thoughts of this movie, and is it working for you? And are you interested in these characters? Uh, at this point, I think I am interested in, in George. He has a few qualities that I think I identify with. Definitely a lot of misses. Our antagonist is working for me as well. We've had our look at uh, our first parody, which, as we said already, uh, worked well. However, there are a lot of misses so far for me. You know, if we're looking at this movie objectively as a person who's never seen it before, are I, you, think we're in tr- I think we're in trouble. Are you driving right now? No. A couple things that I did note in Act 1 here that uh, a couple threads that are picked up later, but I thought were more prominent in the first act here, is as soon as we see George coming out of his first daydream, uh, I think we're introduced to uh, a couple of things. Obviously, we see that he has an active imagination, that he's a creative type personality, and that these traits are not glamorized in him in the first act. These are holding him back in his life. He is a late 20s loser, along with his friend. His girlfriend, obviously, is in the same boat because she's dating this loser. But he can't make his imagination work for him. It's always holding him back. And I thought that this was a really interesting thread that they started up. And by far the most compelling piece of the film so far. Uh, Even in a comedy like this, because his active imagination is what propels the rest of the movie yes and, and we'll get into that shortly yeah it's interesting when you talk about the uh, imagination I, I i've seen the updated walter Mitty movie so i know of the character when i watched the commentary he mentions that one of the inspirations for this movie was the original the secret life of walter Mitty, where walter Mitty's a daydreamer as well have you seen that either movie uh no the with ben stiller right yeah uh, i have not seen it actually i really enjoyed that movie highly recommend Oh, interesting. Okay. It's one of the few Ben Stiller movies I actually I do enjoy. So so these characters are working for you and you're invested. He, I mean, uh, George is working for me, so yes. Yeah, I, I mean, for me at this point, uh, I would say when I was a kid, obviously I loved, I, I, I loved George. I loved Stan Lee right off the bat. Uh, looking at it now, if I just saw this movie, uh, I have to take my nostalgia glasses off. So far, this act isn't working for me. I'm bored. I'm not really interested. It's only because I know what's coming that I'm still watching. And they took a lot of time to get here, actually. It doesn't feel that long in the movie, but the rest of the movie it seems so short. I don't know if that's because it, it works a little better and we're more interested and we lose track of time, but I'm noting the minutes in, so far. and. Yeah. And I'm losing interest, so it'll be interesting to come about to this point is, like, 
will audiences today actually get to this point or are they going to be turning it off? Yeah. All right, so let's move on to the second act. And again, the second and third act are much shorter and much quicker, so we won't take as long um, to get through that. So again, this is the second act for me is the best part of the movie. So immediately what happens is, is because his girlfriend, uh, Terry, dumps him. You see the next scene is George is uh, doing his uh, another episode of Uncle Nutsy's Playhouse. He's depressed. I love the monologue he gives about the Roadrunner and the Coyote. Yeah. As he mocks and laughs at him. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Uh, I love that part. So I, I appreciate Weird Al's acting there. If you call it acting, I just love that, that monologue. Uh, but the the noteworthy part is is he just gives up, leaves the live live taping of the show, tells Stanley to go in and he can have his own TV show. <laughs> I love Michael Richards' delivery. He goes, he goes, Stanley, would you like to be a host of the TV show? And he goes, uh, okay. <laughs> I love that. And then they leave, and then he kind of like so he's like wondering, well, where do I go? Oh, he sees the studio door. He sees that the li- it's it's live, and he goes. <laughs> I just I can't do that chuckle appropriately, but I just love that. I just love his his stupidity that he's bringing out, his ignorance and the naivety, and it, it's perfect. It's it's wonderfully played. So what happens is then George. And Bob go to a bar, and this is again another leap of faith here. All of a sudden, they see everyone's tuning into their station, and from an audience of nothing, all of a sudden he is instantaneously billed to an audience of five to maybe five hundred. In this in this world here, pre Twitter, pre internet, hard to believe that he went viral before that was even a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting. Within within moments. Yeah, within moments. It's literally it's the same show. Yeah, it's the same um, show. It was over a commercial break. Yeah, it's over a commercial break, essentially. And, and then, you know, something I did notice as well, like when they're in this bar, you see, I get, I don't know if this is a commentary of Americana <laughs> or, or whatnot. Uh, all these people, what is this, 10, 11 a.m. and it, the bar's packed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can see the type of patrons that associate this bar. So I won't go yeah. further into that. And, but And then and they're all watching a, uh, a kid's show. So <clears throat> I think there's some disturbing things here that we should just get moved past as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess the one question was, I was going to ask is how did this catch on fire that quickly? And where did those members come from? But it's a big leap of faith. But then the only other questions you just briefly touched on that. The only last question I have is, is life like a mop, Jeff? Uh, I'll tell you this. I wrote this down and that's a way better saying than, than like it's a box of chocolates. So it is, yeah, it, it is. is like a mop. You know what? I actually really did like that speech as goofy as it was and as silly as it was and as maybe as protracted as the speech was i really thought it was interesting because it spoke to that that character's past obviously he's a moron you know borderline mentally uh, developmentally challenged and he loves his mop and he is a guy who understands that life can be a piece of shit and you work hard and you scrub out and sometimes there's a lot of garbage in that but you pick it out and you stand up and you you make it you make it good by scrubbing it and as simplistic as that sounds i thought that was an interesting thing to throw in there yeah um i agree i, I always love that speech it's a feel good speech it, it, he, what he's saying is correct even though it's on a very simplistic level meant for humor as well but yeah i've always loved that it works i think it works i mean it obviously it's played for laughs but like i said earlier with a lot of weird al's humor if you listen to his songs there's a lot of intelligence behind a lot of the lyrics if you listen to Weird Al's songs. And I, I'm not trying to elevate his art form, as talented as he is. 
but I think this is a piece of that where there's a lot more going on under the surface and a, and a lot of Weird Al humor that people don't pick up on because obviously the the surface is sort of the goofy parody stuff. And really, if you if you listen, this is the kind of stuff that's actually there. So if you pay attention, you can get more out of it. And that's true. And I'm glad you brought this up because just very quickly, I was going to ask you something about that, but I'll wait. So I'll just get back into right. the into the into the main storyline. So obviously, after this um, inspirational speech that Stanley gives, uh, this gives George the confidence boost, the kick in the pants that he needs to. Go back and say, okay, we've got a shot to make this work. And you know, all of a sudden, his imagination really kicks into gear. So here come the pretzels. Uh, I mean, the parodies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you call them whitey whackers. <laughs> here come the pretzels. <laughs> so, yeah, you get parody after parody. And this is where, why the second act really, really works so well. And this is what Weird Al is known for. This is why they wanted to do this movie. Probably why the studios greenlit this. So now you get all the great parodies. You get Conan the Librarian. You get Town Talk. You get Strip Solitaire, Celebrity Mud Wrestling, Wheel of Fish. So which one was out of those, or if I missed any, were your favorites? Well, I have a question for you, Harry. Okay. Don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? <laughs> At the time, yes. But I forgot I everything now. It. When Conan the Librarian just straight up chopped that dude in half. See, that's the best part of it. It wasn't. Was it wasn't the, the Dewey Decimal it. System. It no, like, it wasn't. It, it no, was it like, wasn't. I'm sorry, these books are a little overdue. Like, <laughs> no way! I didn't talk to him. I just hacked him straight in half. <laughs> I cut you the guy what? in half. I love it. Fantastic. I'll, I'll. But I'll say this: as much as I love Conan the Librarian, my favorite parody here is the uh, classic song. Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, what? Are you I, kidding me? Yeah, no, I love the Beverly Hillbillies. I think that uh, actually came earlier. Um, it's not. It, it, it did, but it was uh, it was late Act One. But you didn't talk about it, so I'm bringing it up yeah. uh, with some state of the art 3D computer animation. <laughs> At the, I guess for yeah. Maybe that was the intervision technology. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it might have been. It might maybe, have been. Maybe that's why Francis Ford Coppola said, fuck this, I'm going to go make wine. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, I know you're the one who's doing the, uh, the trivia, but do you know the background of this one? Of uh, what? which one? Beverly oh, Hillbillies. Beverly Hillbillies? Oh, yeah. I know of the show. Uh, right. I know he's riffing off another song and just adapting the lyrics, Beverly Hillbillies. I forget what the song is. But I hate I hate every aspect of this. This is my opinion the worst part of the movie. Oh, this is great. So the uh, the Beverly Hillbillies uh, song here, obviously, uh, as you know, is telling the story of the old TV show. The song is parroting is the classic "Money for Nothing" by Dire Straits. And in fact, in the video, the video features from Dire Straits Mark Knopfler on guitar and Guy Fletcher on synth. So two guys from Dire Straits actually perform the music for this parody and are in the video. Yeah, I remember hearing something like that. Yeah. yeah. So that was my favorite just because you were talking about the parodies. That was my favorite uh, parody. That's your favorite uh, parody in the whole movie. Well, at least to this point, I have a soft spot for Wheel of Fish, but it was really racist. So, hmm. Wow. I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't go far as saying there was anything racist in any of that. My favorite, aside from Conan, in this section of parodies, is Town Talk. I love it. How he, I, he, he, you know, it's, it, it is a complete 
snapshot and commentary on America's sensationalism, yeah. uh, exploitation, and all the talk shows. Like it was a complete riff of uh, Geraldo Rivera at the time. There was no Jerry Springer at the time. Uh, I think that came in the nineties. I love it. I, I love, it's like uh, I love it. He's uh, he attacks Satanism. Shut up, you pinhead! You make me <laughs> sick. <laughs> <laughs> And that, I like, made it over that, yeah. Very funny, very funny. Yeah, yeah. and at the end, like, Nazi hookers! <laughs> with, 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 no, no, with, it, was, it was Nazi lesbians, I think, is uh, what the actual... Oh, is this, is it, is, did this inspire, what was it, uh, Robert Rodriguez Grindhouse thing, uh, the Nazi women werewolves or whatever? It may have, it may have. <laughs> so here's, here's where it all started, folks. Yeah, here's maybe. It started. Yeah, I also love the, the strip solitaire, it's like... <laughs> I like you know, the strips. I mean, just the concept of strip solitaire. It's like I'm just going to be stripping by myself. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mind you, I. You know what I also liked was the celebrity mud wrestling with Mikhail Gorbachev. Yes, I that was pretty good too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're all good. And this is this is what yeah. really really made this really made the second act work, and what really kicked off the movie. This is this is comedy and, and Weird Al at its at his best, in my opinion. Absolutely true. Yeah. I, I mentioned that there was some maybe light brushing on America's sensationalism and exploitation. Do you think that whether through these parodies or even anything else, do you think Weird Al touches on any sociological issues that are pre- that were prevalent in the eighties? I actually do because, as I've said before about his humor, it's actually very intelligent. And he, no, nah, I hate to use cliches, but he really has his finger on the pulse of a lot of things. I think. I mean, this is a time when, again, to reference uh, celebrity mud wrestling with Mikhail Gorbachev. This is the end of the Cold War in 1989. Mikhail Gorbachev is a big figure. To throw him in uh, a mud wrestling match, I thought was symbolic of the Cold War as uh, basically a mud wrestling type of match. Absolutely. There's lots of social messages uh, going on here. Absolutely. I I agree. I think that's the the genius of Weird Al. I don't think he goes out of his way to kind of say, I want to talk about this message specifically. I think part of it is... His genius in comedy and parodying, a lot of what he's parodying sometimes already touches on some of those issues. So it's just blind luck or happenstance that he's actually airbrushing on these issues, is what I would say. I agree. I, well, I, I mean, he knows, he knows what's out there, and he's, like any artist, he's writing about what's happening at the time. Yes. Okay, so um, getting back to the movie. So obviously after all these parodies, so George has kicked off some of the, the, these shows. Uh, they're starting to be a su- very successful. They get the ratings report from the previous month, and now all of a sudden they're number one. So this, then we cut to R.J. Fletcher throwing a hissy fit at his son and his uh, other cronies. Yeah, I, I love his Kevin McCarthy's delivery. It's like, we can't stand by. This is a UHF station. A UHF station. I, I just, I just, I just love that his delivery there. And then he's so upset. Some other guy bugs him, and he's one of his staff. He's wearing a cowboy hat, and he's so upset. He goes, "Take that ridiculous thing off!" And I love the gag. The guy rips off his fake mustache instead of taking off oh, the cowboy that was hat. Hilarious! Yeah. <laughs> it totally took me off guard the first time I saw it, and it still works today. I love that. I think that's my favorite joke, dumb joke in the movie, because um, it gets me every time. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, RJ starts to think, how can he ruin these guys? So he wants to track down the owner. So he contacts Uncle Harvey. And uh, right before he calls, coincidentally, Harvey, uh, Harvey 
loses a big bet to Big Louie, or I sh- we shouldn't we should actually refer to Big Louie as Doctor Claw for the rest of this movie. Let's um, do that. Yep. Yeah. So do- he loses a bet to Doctor Claw. He owes him seventy thousand, seventy five thousand dollars. So um, I guess he comes into a verbal agreement with uh, R. J. Fletcher to sell the UHF station. That's where Act Two ends. Once George finds out that. R.J. Fletcher has a verbal agreement with his uncle to buy the station. Just one thing before we move on is when Harvey's sitting in that pool before he gets the call from Dr. Claw. He's listening to this song, and it's a Weird Al song. It's a little bit. Let me dick. be your hog Yes! <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Let me be your hog! I love that. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, totally random. <laughs> I love it. I think he wanted to get something else in there, but he couldn't get the rights to it, so he just made something up, and it works. So this is the end of Act 2, because Act 3 is very quick. So at this point, what do you think of the movie? At this, Is it working? Are you even uh, more invested now? It's picked up in the second act. Obviously, the parodies are starting to carry the film through. Uh, we start to see some of the threads of the first act, where George's creati- uh, daydreaming and creative tendencies start to work for him. So he's starting to figure out how to turn his passion for imagination into a lifestyle for himself, and it's working. And uh, so he's winning. So he's winning. So yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's working. Uh, I think it's working much better now in the second act. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is the best part of the movie. And unfortunately, there's a bit of a, a downfall from here. Whether this movie will still work, we can realistically give it a recommendation at the end. We'll see. So we'll start with Act 3. So George realizes that RJ has that verbal agreement with his uncle, so he calls his aunt right away. His aunt obviously wears the pants in the family, so they work out a situation where if George can raise the money quickly, he'll sell the station to George himself instead of RJ. So uh, the only idea that George has a telethon, a Save Our Station telethon, where everyone, the public, whoever buys or donates will get a a share of the station. Then we pretty much cut straight into the marathon. And what did you think of this marathon? Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Well, it, it smacks of something very overly simplistic for me, uh, a little too feel good at this point. It's just kind of goofy, sort of like a, a, a Band-Aid type of situation and almost out of nowhere. So uh, when I first, I mean, I obviously I remember the movie well before I watched it now and I knew this is how the third act was wrapping up and as it starts to come in to the third act, uh just seems like uh, an odd way to try to resolve the problems of the movie. Yes. Yeah. It's it's not very I mean it's bad storytelling. It's not it's not great. I don't even know what they realistically could have done. I mean it's funny thing is is the first thing I asked myself when I watched it this time because I'm trying to look at it uh, a little bit more objectively is I said since the station is now number 1, could they not go to a bank for a loan? Well, I thought, yeah, couldn't they go to the go to a bank for the loan? And conversely, couldn't RJ have just bought all of the goddamn shares himself at the telethon? Oh, but then they wouldn't have sold to him, though, on purpose. Well, what, is he not resourceful enough of a businessman who's so successful that he can't have his... His front, he can have a front. His front, you know, trusts and things to buy it up. I mean, obviously it's too simplistic a movie to have that type of a plot development, but... Because it was so simplistic, it's starting to unravel, I think. Yes. And the funny thing is, so in the deleted scenes, George actually does go to a bank. Asks for a loan, but apparently the banks in town, R.J. Fletcher apparently has connections with. 
So he uh, is he is like kind of like the mob or the big tough of the town. So I think that that should have stayed in the movie. It would have made a bit more sense to me because now if you look at it as an adult, it, you, that's the first thing you ask yourself: Why a telethon? Just go to a fucking bank and just get the loan. You're number one in town. They'll give it to yeah, you. Exactly, and it's a trope that's been played out somewhere, <laughs> and I can't put my finger on it. But it it doesn't quite work. It just doesn't ring true to me. Yeah, yeah, no, it it doesn't. One of the things I wanted to ask you about this telethon, the specific, I, I thought this is again when Al, Weird Al is not doing his parodies. It this humor doesn't work. These acts were terrible. I think in the commentary yeah. they said they were just local talent. I mean, what the fuck were those guys? Those things? Are they humans? Do they look like this? They're actually called the Kipper Kids, and they're the guys that are going. I mean, what the what the hell? What is these? Yeah, things? there's some there's some weird stuff going on here, and it's almost yeah. It's like uh, if you listen to the commentary, I guess you can confirm, but it certainly smacks of just we want to throw some random goofy off the wall humor here. So here's our budget. This is what we could find. Probably, and I, I'm sure that's yeah. what it came down to. But the interesting question I would have is, who in their right fucking mind would see these acts in a telethon and want to donate? Uh, I don't understand that. That would turn me off completely. Well, if I saw this shit in a telethon that I, if I was actually watching one, I'd donate to batshit crazy every time. <laughs> uh, I'm glad to hear that. It's your way. That's <laughs> <laughs> my, my way. We, we do cut to, we do get one parody intermixed with these live acts in the telethon. Do you want to guess which one, if you can remember? It's a commercial. Oh, a movie commercial. Come on. Gandhi 2. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So No more, Mr. Passive Resistance. <laughs> Give me a steak. Medium rare. <laughs> I love that. Uh, as a kid, I think that was one of my more favorite parodies. Uh, I still love it. So a couple of interesting things here about this, uh, about this one is Gandhi was played by Jay Levy, who was the director. And... We'll talk about oh, we'll, we'll, okay. yeah. We'll talk about Jay at the end. And the funny uh, the funny part is is I love when he gets out of his uh, Lamborghini or Ferrari and he and he starts punching out those uh, bad guys and he actually starts hammering one of the head guys on top of the car. They were actually yeah. super concerned because they dented the car and they weren't even sure if they got insurance to protect against car damage for <laughs> on the Ferrari. And, and luckily they did. There was a little minor clause in their insurance policy through the studio that did cover it because they didn't say it specifically. So they were freaking out when that happened. That uh, Apparently, that would have stopped the film in its tracks at that point. Well, and, I can understand that. That's an expensive vehicle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that vehicle probably costs more than the movie cost. Or well, no, 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 <laughs> no. No, <laughs> we, we know still. how much it costs. At this point here is, and again, this is something I'll ask you. RJ is obviously keeping an eye on this telethon, sees that they're starting to raise some significant amount of money. God knows why. But anyways, he starts getting worried and he says, I think it's time we need to, I need to send my henchmen. We need to kidnap Stanley Spadowski. Well, so they kidnap Stanley. Stanley. My question is, why? At this point, what is him not being there? I know in my plot summary I said, this is, I'm, I was just stretching it. Uh, it was a guess uh, at his motivations that I'm going to take Stanley away from this telethon so it won't raise money. But really, why would that make a difference at this point? Again, uh, we're stretching the story a little bit. I suppose if we want to go from a very simplistic standpoint, because Stanley was the most successful or the Stanley Spadowski's Funhouse was the most successful show. He's always the draw of the network. So if he's not there, the ratings go down. Fewer people are watching and pledging and... All that bullshit doesn't make a lot of sense uh, in the real world. 
uh, obviously we're playing in a different playground at this point. So yeah, yeah, uh, I, I agree. It doesn't make a lot of sense. The reason why I can guess from a story point point of view or a movie point of view is they needed some kind of action scene or, yes. or, or some kind of threat. And this was the only thing they could think of. And they also wanted to get in another parody. So we'll get to that in a second. Right. So I, I love the, the cut scene when they go to so Stanley gets kidnapped and he's located in a warehouse being held by the Italian guy and some other henchmen. And I, I love one of the older henchmen because, like, he's really getting annoyed by Stanley. He's going, yeah. the uh, I spy game. It's like, I see something orange. Something orange. You know what it is? It's an orange. <laughs> <laughs> I still, I still laugh at that today. It's so stupid, but you know his what? delivery really like of that. it is his delivery is so that good. Orange. <laughs> you know what I really liked about that scene is as he was saying, it's orange, but his blindfold was orange. So I thought that's what <laughs> oh he was yes, about. <laughs> good catch, good catch. Maybe that's what yeah. he's seeing. Is he so? Yeah. He can't think. He, he doesn't have any deep thoughts, so it's just like what right. he's seeing. He's, so he's an like... idiot, so that's what he sees. <laughs> but even a... he can't even recognize it as his blindfold. Is like, I see something orange. Oh, it must be an orange. <laughs> good lots catch. Of layers. Yeah, lots of layers. <laughs> that's a great catch. That's a great catch. I, I do love Michael Richards' performance here. I love it when he – I love the, the – going back to one of the bad guys. It, it's not the Italian guy. It's the other older guy where he's getting so frustrated as he's doing this I Spy game. He goes, let me kill him. Please let me kill him. <laughs> it's like I love, I love that delivery. That that, that when I quote this movie, I, I quote this movie often with my sister or some uh, family members, and that's usually one of the things I always pull from. Is like, let me kill him. Please let me kill him. I'm happy you have situations in your life with your family members and your sister where you can use that line. <laughs> quote it. Yeah, I won't. I won't go further into that. Yeah. <laughs> But I love the I love when Stanley sees his mop, my mop, and then like the old mop that was stolen from him. Obviously, yeah. the payoff has come back. Uh, he gets so excited, he breaks out of his ropes. He goes on his little uh, spree, escape spree. Uh, what what do you think of that? Uh, I, I do love Michael Richards' physical performance here. Apparently, these are the first scenes that they ever shot. Oh, really? Okay. With, with well, him? That's... With him? I always find it interesting when. And I remember when I first realized this, you know, being a fan of movies, uh, being shot out of sequence, and I figure it must be difficult for actors to kind of get into character for a scene that's way at the end of the movie, and it's the first scenes that they're shooting. Uh, I love his physical performance. I mean, that's what he's great at. He really sells it. Obviously, it's goofy, silly, uh, but he he manages to anchor that and make it, he makes it work. Stuff with the mop is great. It's, It's silly, it's simple, it's goofy, but it's funny. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's funny. It works, uh, and he works, and, and I do love every aspect of of that chase in the office. It it is legitimately funny, uh, and it works today, in my opinion. But he still he doesn't manage to escape. He still gets captured, and again, payoff. Why we talked about Philo the scientist before Secrets of the Universe. We forgot to mention that. But anyways, he's spying on R.J. Fletcher, so he has a camera in his office. And he realizes that Stanley is there because they don't know where he is. So then George runs off to save him alone. And the reason why is so we can get the next parody, the Rambo parody. This has so, got to be your favorite. No, no, no. It's not my favorite. I, I enjoyed it again when I was a kid. But it's, it's not my favorite parody. The, my favorite part of this whole thing, there's only two things that I really like. Is the first scene when he meets up with the old henchman who's playing now a Russian 
they're like what one foot away, and the guy can't oh, hit yeah. him. And then he takes the uh, George takes the bow and arrow and lets it go and blows the guy up. I love that effect. I I love that parody. How nobody can hit Rambo and it works. It, it was it was a joke back then, right? Because you know Rambo, uh, you know, went through so many people and he never got killed. So. Uh, that's what he's. You know what I on. actually thought is uh, it really resembles quite closely the climax of the most recent Rambo movie, where he just blows up some generic Asian bad guy camp. Uh, well, it's more actually. I think they were more riffing on Rambo two, and that's the next part well, they... where I'll get into is uh, the one of the other parts I do love about this is when he infiltrates the camp. It's supposed to be the like the parody of the Viet- Vietnam Vietnam POW camp in Rambo two. He sees Stanley in one of the little shacks, and he just lifts the little lock gate, the backyard gate, and it opens it up. And Stanley could have reached through and opened it up himself. I love that little little gag. And that whole helicopter chase scene, again, was um, reminiscent of Rambo 2. Uh, I do love the electrical tape on, uh, if you noticed, when you see R.J. Fletcher in his own little helicopter, and he has the number 8 on his helmet for Channel 8. And you can love the production budget there because it's either hockey tape or it's electrical tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did notice that, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I do love that. And then, obviously, then he does riffs on it a bit more but kind of pushes the limits and he just starts blowing up. He's daydreaming as he's blowing up pretty much the entire world in that helicopter and then bursts, you know, does the Rambo. You know, yeah. And at the, you know, we'll get into that if we ever do a Sly movie. Sly always does that kind of scream in every movie, whether he's driving a car or he's opening a door or he's running, he'll always go, Argh! With like, his, like, deformed lips and shit. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. I wouldn't go that far. It's like his, half his face is melting off. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, Give the guy I, a break, man. He was he, he was harmed as a baby like by the well, doctors like, I mean, as he was birthed. <laughs> I, I don't need to give him a break. The guys turned that into a career worth millions of dollars. He can take it. Yeah. Okay, so you know what I thought was kind of you know what uh, small details sometimes stick out right and, the, and he catches a bullet a weird out in that scene right he catches a bullet in his teeth yeah but it's the whole bullet it's not just the slug <laughs> like, why, why is the whole bullet in his mouth doesn't good, make any sense good catch good catch again it's just, it's just lazy it's lazy but I mean I, I'm 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 going with it I, I'm letting it go yeah I, I'm not yeah. gonna harm this movie simply because of that so the the parody ends as. Because, you know, George is daydreaming, he breaks into the office to rescue Stanley, and then we cut back to the the real world, the movie world, where he realizes, oh shit, I, I came with nothing. So I didn't call the police, I didn't do anything. Uh, he gets captured as well, but then we hear that there's a noise in the in the closet. I don't know how these guys got in there, but there's Cooney and his karate guys. Uh, the Cobra Kai, or whoever they are, <laughs> sweep the leg, right? So they come storming out of the office and I guess beat up everybody, and then we cut immediately to the end of the movie where Stanley is rescued, George is coming back with those karate team and Cooney back to the station, and they get there, they meet their uh, goal because the bum apparently got a, a very rare penny from R.J. Fletcher by begging to him at Channel 8 earlier in the movie, and it worth it was worth a fortune. So he buys all the rest of the shares, the bum, who's the bozo the clown bum, and they meet their goal, and Uncle Harvey sells everything to George, and the station's theirs, and R.J. loses. So what do you think about that rushed payoff? Because it pretty much is as quick as I just mentioned it there. 
Yeah, it definitely felt a little rushed. I mean, we go from the Rambo parody right to the the climax of the telethon. And, and like you say, everything just sort of comes together right at the end. And in any in a movie like this, obviously everything's going to come together at the end really quickly. But felt a little felt a little forced. Even his girlfriend comes back and she loves him again all of a sudden. Yeah. It's a joke with the rare coin that the bum has where he buys himself a Rolex, which is, again, a payoff of a yeah. setup from earlier. And then what was the deal with Philo going back to the mothership there? Uh, that just it's a little out of nowhere I, I, as well. I, that was a little uh, weird. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was that a little was, weird, right? Yeah, I don't know so, where that came from. I guess just they wanted something... Maybe that's what the intervision technology was, and then, and then I, keep yeah, going, yeah. I keep going back to Francis Ford Coppola. It's like, oh, what's this intervision uh, studio and technology? Maybe that was the effects company. He goes, this is shit. I'm going to go make wine. <laughs> I, I could see Francis Ford Coppola going back to the mothership, though. That would add up. <laughs> Let's be real. Every Hollywood movie wraps itself up in a nice little bow. Yeah, R.J. Fletcher. But, uh, yeah, he gets... As I mentioned yeah. in the plot summary, all of a sudden, out of the blue, this, I don't know, FCC or whatever the, who uh, manages all the TV rights and the networks, some rep comes through and he goes, oh, yeah, I've been watching you. You've impressed me. I'm revoking your license. And then he gets yeah. canned and then he realizes the bum's got the Rolex and he's the reason why he got, the shares were bought because of his penny. Again, bad guy's got to get it. It's all wrapped up in a neat little package. And so what'd you think of that? I felt that they could have done a little more with it. Yeah. Yeah, it it felt a little, uh, I don't want to say easy because, again, it's not Shakespeare, but considering the level of talent I think that actually is involved here, as I've said with Weird Al, we could have done something that would have been a better payoff for this all of the setups at, to this point. We didn't really get it. Yeah, no, we didn't get it. Maybe Orion Studios got it and then they went bankrupt, so I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, they ran out of money before they could make a real working ending, but so yeah. be it. Yeah, so that's the end of the movie. I have a couple questions as for the final thoughts. Uh, one, did, do you still enjoy it today as much as you did before? What are do you feel are really the strengths and weaknesses of the movie, and what really stood out for you? Okay, well, I'll answer those in a different question. Uh, the standouts, obviously, are the parodies that take place throughout the film. I'd say there wasn't really a parody that didn't hit for me. The commercials, the you know Conan the Librarian... The Rambo thing, all of those parodies hit for me. So I'd say that those are the standout. Does the movie work for me overall? I have to say no. The overall, the movie doesn't work. My memory has is a lot kinder to the film than my eyes today. Yes, and I was going to say the same thing. I mean, we are trying to do this podcast. We're not just going to sit back and gush over something we loved as a kid. We have to be still somewhat objective, right? So I'm with you. The parodies work. They are the strengths of the movie. That's it, It's so little a part of the movie, but when it's firing on all cylinders there, it really works. I also think, surprisingly, I would say that the acting for some, from some of the actors really are, are good. Uh, Kevin McCarthy as R.J. Fletcher, Michael Richards are the standout performances. I do like Philo's deadpan delivery every time he's on, on the screen. And surprisingly, actually, I do like Weird Al, and I wanted to ask you about this. Obviously, he's no leading man. He's no Oscar-caliber actor. Do you think he can act? That's an interesting question, because that 
Because you mentioned Jerry Seinfeld earlier, you know, a potential actor who could have been in this film. No, uh, he cannot act in the same way that Jerry Seinfeld can't act. But there's a certain aspect to, to him as a performer that makes him work on screen in this role. So when he's in those parodies, it works. When he's doing Weird Al, it works. When he's just exchanging dialogue in a scene with another character, he's he's pretty cardboard. He's pretty one-dimensional, and it doesn't work. And uh, and again, why I brought up Jerry Seinfeld, much the same thing. If you watch Seinfeld, that guy's not an actor. He no. can perform, and he helps make the jokes that are being told by some of the other actors work, right? And Weird Al sort of uh, occupies the same space for me in this in this film. He this movie doesn't work at all without Weird Al. No, it doesn't. And and that's the reason why I wanted to bring it up is I agree with you. I mean, he's not a great actor, but surprisingly, I there are a couple of moments where, you know, when he realizes the station was going to go bankrupt and he knew things weren't going to work. I actually felt some I felt for him in those scenes. I thought he actually portrayed that emotion like he wasn't obvious with it. It's a very subtle performance, whether that's through his inexperience as an actor and he didn't know what to do or he actually knew what he was doing. I actually bought his acting in some of these scenes surprisingly and i still do today but i understand what you're saying completely uh he is not a great actor but i don't want to be too harsh on the guy either whether it's no. by whether it's by fluke and again happenstance that it does work i, I don't know the directing itself i found was just uh paint by numbers guy this is his manager who's directing this jay Le- levy i think in the commentary weird al Kind of just said, oh yeah, yeah, you were the director. I think you just got the gag, so that's why you did it. So, yeah, it, it's very. There, there's no artistry to the direction here. It's point the camera over here. Yeah, yeah, and have the actors hit their marks. I mean, it, it, it's not that kind of movie though. No, so, in fact, it's funny. I found in the commentary, Weird Al actually makes fun of him and his directing. He goes, oh, we were supposed to get a look at this person's face, but you didn't tell him to turn around. I don't know if he was just <laughs> joking or if he was actually legitimately saying, you suck as a director. Uh, oh, but uh, you know what? It might be a combination of the two, right? Because that's what he does is he is making fun of other people. Uh, and especially if you listen to Weird Al's more modern songs, because he still makes parodies that aren't nearly as popular as they used to be. But he's often making fun of the artist now when he does his parodies. So in a commentary track, you know, a comment like that makes me think that, yeah, he's making a joke, but he is criticizing the artist for their lack of vision. In the context of UHF, that might not be fair because what's the director supposed to do in this situation? The jokes are written. The parodies are set. We know what we're going to see. It's kind of a situation where... You've got a director who's just there to to uh, direct traffic. It's like Brett Ratner. You know, the guy's not directing anything from an artist's perspective. Yeah. He's just there to show the actor where his mark is, and that's it. Yeah, and I agree. Uh, there's nothing special to his style. It's very paint-by-numbers. It's very simplistic. But that's what this movie is. So, yeah. uh, so just, again, as a final, final thought uh, to wrap things up, the only thing I would say to you is... Does this movie work today? Would modern audiences really be able to get through this movie? Because to me, this movie really just is a snapshot of 80s lifestyle. It does touch upon, as I mentioned before, sensationalism, exploitation, 
uh, with some of those parodies. It, it shows the style, you know, of pop culture because he hits on a lot of those marks in this movie based on other movies or other things that were happening um, in pop culture at the time in the entertainment industry. So do people, modern audiences, would they be able to understand any of that stuff? If it's a yes or no question, does this work for modern audiences given that context? I'm going to say no, it does not. The issues that are brought up, as you said, that we've touched on aren't given the the airtime, the humor, the satirical element that I think a modern audience is going to need in order to have that hold up. So I'm going to say no, it does not. The nuggets are there. I think there's some really, really interesting stuff that does happen at points throughout this movie. Overall, I don't think that the modern audience has a lot to get out of this one. I'm with you on that for the most part. I guess then, would you recommend this for someone to watch today, though? Or no? Is would this I just... recommend this? Yes. I Actually, you know what? I would recommend this for somebody to watch today. And, and the reasons why I would is because I think that... There's some really funny points in this movie that I think uh, predate some of the humor that we take for granted today. If you are a fan, say, for example, of a show like Family Guy, where just a random vignette will pop out of nowhere of a uh, pop culture reference or a show like Robot Chicken, UHF did all that stuff 20 years before those shows ever thought of this. So I think that this was the genesis of some of that type of humor as a piece of cultural history. That's important. So I can, I can recommend it from that perspective. If you were to take that away, I don't know. I don't think so. No, actually, actually, very well said. I agree with your point of view. I, I love how you touched on, uh, and I agree, that it is a genesis of some of the humor that is popular today. You mentioned Robot Chicken, which I do thoroughly enjoy, and Family Guy, which I used to enjoy in its um, early days, but not anymore. It does touch on a lot of those things, and if you so, if you do enjoy satirical humor, if you do enjoy uh, parodies, uh, I do recommend this movie. If you've just discovered Weird Al Yankovic, do yourself a favor, watch this movie. If you've never heard of Weird Al Yankovic and don't want to watch a movie. Maybe just YouTube some of his music videos, and if you get a kick out of those, go find this movie somewhere and watch it. Highly recommended from my end. I do have a little bit of uh, rose-tinted glasses glasses on because I did love this movie as a kid. I do still mainly enjoy this movie now, even though there are large parts of this movie that still don't really work, and I can find some flaws, but I do recommend it. I, I still have fun watching it today. I think that wraps it up for today. Hopefully you guys got through it. We're at the one hour and 50 minute mark right now. Uh, you so, know, yeah, I think we're longer than the actual movie at this point. So. Yeah, yeah. You probably can. Why don't you just go forget us? Go watch the movie right now. Don't even bother yeah, listening watch the movie. Honestly, that's a win for Weird Al. If the uh, podcast from Two Random Dudes is longer than the film, you won. For our next episode, Jeff, do you care to enlighten us on what we're going to do? Because since it's your turn to choose. Well, I will answer that question with another question, my friend. What do you get for the man who has everything? The David Fincher thriller starring Michael Douglas, The Game. Oh, great, great pick. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that movie, so I'm looking forward to watching it. That's a good one. It's a good one to choose. Fincher directed that one? David Fincher directed that one. Oh, yep. wow. Oh, so great. We're getting into Fincher already. That's great. Yep. All right, uh, so that wraps it up today. Episode one, uh, our review and take on UHF. Hope you enjoyed it. 